Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take your seats. I believe that song that Christian was singing is one of his favorites. It's a testimony, and I, I'm sure every time I hear it, I'll be remembering. Remembering is what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that we are a Bible-believing church. If you bring the word cloud up, you can see that every Sunday you gather here, there's no confusion. Uh, you should always find the Bible being open. And my prayer is that the people of this church are people of the book. Not that you just carry it around to act like you're super spiritual because you carry it. Uh, but the Bible says that we want to hide God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. Thy word have a, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's the very thing that when it shines, guess what happens? We have answers. There was a lot of folks today, I listened to a lot of the talk shows while I was driving, and uh, they're trying to give answers to, uh, to explain how something so bad can happen uh, where children are just slaughtered by uh, randomly. There's no particular name. There wasn't any vindictive spirit from the, from the shooter, from the, from the children. It was just evil violence. And people are trying to figure out why, what? Does, how do you make sense of this? And yet I, I raise the same question about when you've got a baby in the womb and, and you're ready to take that person's life. But they don't see it quite the same. But when you see it from a biblical perspective, you understand that every life is precious. From conception to the last breath of someone that's been with us. Mortality is never something that we just smile at and say, oh, no big deal. But because of, of the scriptures, we know that death doesn't have the same sting for those who know Christ. And that's part of that testimony. When we can testify that God has given us something that we otherwise wouldn't have had. The eyes of faith. And we understand that what the cross is, it may be a, a, a message of foolishness to many and even a stumbling block to some who are religious, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's wonderful news. That's why when we bring the word, cl word cloud up, it's always about the Bible and always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the other things, they, it's because, because of the gospel, we're different. We want to reach our community. We want to be loving and kind and friendly. We want to make sure that God gets the glory, which is what reform means. And covenantal is we, we don't have to ever be afraid that God will change the salvation plan. He made a covenant. He said, this is what I'll do. I will guarantee a salvation. And that's why we don't have to worry as those without hope or even worry that God might change his mind. No. For those whom he loved, he secured a salvation that's wonderful. And that's why we want to not forsake worship, which is the next biggest one. When we come to church now, we don't come because we're just trying to check the box. We're not coming just because we want to make sure we get our tax deduction put in the box for the offering, you know, even though all those things can be very nice. They might even be good for your taxes at the end of the year. But really the reason we come is only to meet with Jesus. That sign over here, he is risen. That was what R.C. Sproul was saying in Sunday school, change the world. The idea that some guy could take on death and win. Up from the grave, Jesus arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes, and it changed the world. Because he lives, we know that there is something more. Because of the resurrection that he demonstrated, there is hope even for those children that died. 
There's hope for even the worst of sinners. And there's hope for you and me. We know that there's something more than just eating and drinking and, and having merriment because we are going to meet the Lord. As we come to meet the Lord today, the encouragement is, is to open up the Word of God. And if you bring up the next slide, I always want to begin our sermon by talking about the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word. Uh, because the Word of God is from God, it is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the men and women of God might be completed... Uh, that's what first, or 2 Timothy 3 talks about. Uh, I want you to know that we are going to read the Word of God, and then we'll be examining it, studying it, and applying it to our hearts. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's Word. I'll be looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning at verse 6. Uh, in this particular chapter, it does have some connection to Memorial Day because we were talking about some gave, uh, all gave some, but, but some gave all. Uh, in this particular story, it is a narrative of the Old Testament hist historical account, and there was one person here who gave us all. And one of the frustrating aspects of this is that you're going to be looking and looking and looking for what reason did he have to die? And then we'll tell you the rest of the story. This is God's word. So David, this is the king, David. He's already become king after having about 15 years from when he was anointed to be king to when he was crowned king. Uh, he had been running and hiding. He'd been living in the caves. Uh, he had been faking that he was crazy and everything else. And finally, God puts him on the throne where he's going to be for 40 years. And when he's on the throne here, David sent word to Joab, which is his commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He said, send to me Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah is a character um, that, that he was a friend of David. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David the king asked Joab... Um, he asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah came out of the king's house and there followed him, uh, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Verse 10, when they told David, King David, Uriah did not go to his house, King David said to Uriah, have you not come a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and, and, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And verse 13. And David, King David, invited Uriah, and he ate in his presence, and he drank, so that they made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in that letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David and all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, then if the, king angers, if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they were, would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to the king, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David responded to the messenger, Thus you shall say back to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. This is God's word. Lord Jesus, I pray your blessing upon the message. I pray that you will give us encouragement and hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this story is a war story, and it talks about uh, the death of somebody who was valiant in battle. And yet, you don't know the rest of the story, do you? It's almost like you've been turning on one of the stations on your cable news network, and they're only telling you so much. And it seems like one of them has a little bit of the inside information because they're saying, hey, this guy named Uriah, he's a great guy, um, but he died. And, and they, they, because of the verses I read for you, you can say, did he have to die? Really? People up in the upper echelons of the, of the government ended up setting the stage so that somebody would actually suffer and actually not come back home? But, but that guy was supposed to go home because the king brought him home earlier and told him to go home, but he didn't listen to the king, so maybe the king was mad that he didn't go home. There's a lot of things that you may not pick up from a first reading of this, and I'll be tackling this a little bit more as we go on. But... I do want to remember Uriah. Did he die in vain? Did they have a big parade for him? Did they make a monument to Uriah? It's kind of interesting when you realize that there isn't any. And yet we have a biblical story about him. And now I'll tell you some of the rest of the story. Now, Memorial Day is a day, it's a national call to honor those who are no longer here to be honored. It is to challenge those who are still alive to be able to speak up. And I really appreciate the testimony that some of you did in taking the microphone, because some of us are afraid to hold that mic. Maybe they think it's a thousand pounds or something. Uh, maybe you don't like to hear your own voice over the speakers. But the fact is, is that I wanted to give an opportunity for us to say, hey, I had a relative that gave their life for a cause. 
On the 100th year anniversary of the Lincoln Memorial, the monument that is anchoring the, the National Mall in D.C. there, it, it's built on the bedrock. On the one side, you have the, the U.S. Congress with its huge buildings and the two wings with the Senate and the House of Representatives. Then you go through that whole mall area to the Washington Monument, the big pointed uh, obelisk. And then when you go to the end of the reflecting pool, you end up finding the Lincoln Memorial. And there is that giant statue of Abraham Lincoln the 16th president. He was put there not by accident because he presided over the nation's internal war. Some people call it the war between the states. Some call it the civil war. It really wasn't very civil. It's pretty nasty. So many people had to die. That man, Abraham Lincoln, was tasked to navigate this great civil war where brothers literally took up arms against one another to determine the fate of federalism in this, in this region. What do you mean, Pastor? This phrase caught my attention once. Whether the United States would, you would say it, the United States is or the United States are. Do you catch the difference? Are we one nation? Are we many states? And that's really what the battle was going to be waging all about while the war was in full swing. Uh, Lincoln, up in, in July of, of 19, or 1863, he ended up realizing that this was, this was not going to end easy. The Southern Confederate troops had finally said, we're never going to stop this thing unless we inflict some pain upon them. And so uh, Robert E. Lee took his troops and they went north. They crossed the Mason-Dixon line and got into Pennsylvania, and they got real close to where my mother-in-law lives. She's in York. They got over to Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, the, the, uh, they weren't sure what they were going to encounter. Uh, they had sent some spies up there to check things out, and this was just a small rural town. Few hills here and there, lots of trees around. But at, on July 4th of that year, the war had gone bad for the Southerners. Their offensive strike uh, in Gettysburg had some, come, come so close to victory, but they were outflanked by the, the Northerners coming around the back and actually stopping the Southerners that were going to outflank them. Whew. So close and yet so far away. When the war was over, there were all kinds of dead bodies. And Abraham Lincoln was asked to go up there. And uh, as president of the United States, he, he was going to stand up and speak. But he was given the, the best position, which is the last position. But the guy that spoke before him was known as one of the greatest orators. He had been in one of the Ivy League schools. And he spoke for two hours. He's not my role model in preaching. I'm sure you're glad of that. But after speaking for so long out in the heat with no microphone, I imagine the people were squirming. I, I don't know how they all sat there. I, I, we've taken the family to see where that, uh, that, that, that speech was given. Lincoln stands up, and he gives a two-minute speech. And he talks about the gallant, gallant efforts of those soldiers on both sides. He was so inspiring because he said there was two causes the cause of liberty and the cause of the fact that men are created by God as men. They're equals. You can hear it in the Gettysburg Address. He really believed this and he stands up and he wants to make that case and then defend it. The president rose to the occasion as few have ever done. 
And he states the cause, that these men should not have died in vain. And then he says, because of their sacrifice, they gave their last full measure of devotion. Had you been there, it would have sounded like this, as Lincoln with his tall stature, with no microphone. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far more than our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. And then he shifts. It is for us, the living, Rather, to be dedicated to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead that we would take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. And he gives three more reasons that we here would highly resolved that these did not die in vain, that this nation that we're in, which is under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. He's talked about how God created men, and now he talks about a new birth. For Christians, you kind of get a sense, hmm, sounds like the new birth. And that this government, this new society, which is of the people, by the people, and for the people, should not be erased or canceled, that it should not perish from the earth. Lincoln said it so powerfully that even the great orator looked at him and he says, wow, I should have, um, he said, I, you know, he implied, I'm in the midst of greatness. Now for us today, I don't have to impress you with speech, but I do want to draw your attention to the idea that death is not in vain. And I'm going to show you this from a few things, but our text also is included. If you have Romans chapter 13, verse 7 up, you'll find that uh, I've been preaching through Romans, and one of the verses that, that highlighted this, which is appropriate on Memorial Day, is uh, Romans 13, verse 7. Pay to all that is owed to them. And then he lists taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. When the apostle was writing it to the church in Rome, he was telling the Christians there, open your eyes up, see what is deserved, and give it. And today we want to give honor where honor is due. The three points of the sermon today are going to be easy to remember. They all sound very similar. The one is called the source of honor, the second, the course of honor, and third, the force of honor. Easy to remember. Um, and when we look at this particular thing, the first, the source of honor, is to see where this honor comes from, where this respect, where this tribute is supposed to originate. Secondly, we're going to look at the course of honor to see where that honor is supposed to go. What is the destination? And third, we're going to see the force of that honor. What does it actually accomplish? And you'll see it in the life of Uriah. So if you're following along with me, if you have the fourth point sheet that is there, you'll be able to pick up on it. Uh, first, I want to talk about the source of honor, God is the source. If you open up your scriptures, you'll find that honor is both a noun and a verb. 
As a noun, I believe it was established by God. You can see that in Genesis 1, uh, verse 31, at the end of the first chapter, at the end of the first account of creation. You can hear that when God made everything, he made it very good. And when God says it's very good, it's not just partially good. It's not just kind of good. It's good. And that makes it honorable. And when you look around at this creation that God made, he didn't do it halfway. He didn't just rig it. He didn't just uh, say, uh, no big deal. It's just going to be people walking around this earth. No, he made it very good. There's a lot of things that God has set up that are honorable. And we're supposed to recognize that when we look at creation. It is a noun. From the moment of creation, we ought to recognize that things are good. They are to be noticed. Uh, But it's also, I told you that it's a noun, but it's also a verb. The idea that we as humans ought to be honoring things was instructed by God. So God tells us that we are supposed to honor some things. You know why? Because we're not really prone to honor things. We're prone to self-promote. If you go back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, they didn't really care about you so much. If they would have cared about you, if they would have had you in mind, do you think they would have taken the bite of the apple and leave you with a a life that's filled with misery and suffering? No, they weren't focused on the offspring. By the way, they didn't even know what offspring was. You know, they didn't have an idea of what a little baby would look like. But God knew better. And I believe that the verb of honoring is something that he had purposed that people ought to be doing. And that's why if you go back to some of the earliest writings you'll find in the Ten Commandments, and you can bring up in the the main one, the Fifth Commandment, which is verse chapter 20, verse 12 of Exodus, you're going to find that God actually tells people, honor some people. Now, this is a universal call to honor, and you don't, you know, if I went around today and I was asking you today about honoring somebody that's a relative that died for a cause, uh, a military cause for freedom, we did, and we, we didn't have to walk around very far because there weren't that many. But this call to honor is universal. If you look at that text, honor your father and your mother. Who in this world has never had a father or mother? And I didn't ask you whether you knew them or not. A lot of people don't know their dads. Apparently, that's one of the big causes for the decline in America. Fatherhood has almost been canceled. And it's been replaced by other things, whether it's the state or whether it's your Google phone. Uh, There's a lot of people that are just leaning on their own understanding now. But when when you understand that we are supposed to give honor to those people whose DNA helped to make us, it's not an option. God says that honor is supposed to take place. Since the fall, it is being taught to people because they needed this kind of teaching. And that's why even if you're in the Ten Commandments, you go back another one, that's number five is honor your parents. But if you look at number four, which is verse eight and following, it says, remember the Lord's day. In other words, church. And even before he set up all the details of the institution, he says there's one day in seven that's set apart. And why do we honor that day? We really honor the God who set up that day. Six days you do all your stuff, but on the seventh day you remember the Lord and you have a quiet time with the Lord. It's supposed to be set apart and different from other days. Do you see how you're supposed to honor God by keeping his day holy? In Scripture, we've been given a lot of this guidance, and that's why I read to you from Romans 13. Christians in the New Testament were told, hey, you ought to have your eyes open and give honor where honor is due. 
sometimes we may not recognize that very quickly. We don't even know how to honor. Which leads me to the second point. The source of the honor is God, but the course of the honor is from God to us and through us to something else. If you look at that text I said, where does it flow to? Honor is supposed to be given to places that are honorable. Honor is supposed to go to those things that are honorable. I had two subpoints. One is honor is universally demanded, but it is not universally applied. Everybody is supposed to extend this honor, but it doesn't just go everywhere. There's some individualistic things. There's some, some uh, prerequisites. There's some uh, filters that it goes through. Everyone is called to express some honor to another, but only a few are to receive that honor. Not everybody is honorable. Now, I mentioned that honor is also not dependent on man's recognition. You see, today we took a few minutes, and I challenged some of you to think back and to see if you can recognize some people who are honorable, to remember and to give praise or to give appreciation to those who gave their last full measure of devotion. And some of you were able to remember it was a cousin, it was a mom, it was a dad. And some might even remember it was a dear friend, it was a colleague. For me, I remember it was some of the church members that I first knew that ended up going off the ward and didn't come back. But honor is not dependent on man's recognition. People that are honorable are honorable whether or not you give it or not. But the scripture tells us that we who are children of God should be extending that honor to them because God honors them. Being honorable is, 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 not, is something that, notice, is, that is noticed by God, even if it's neglected by others. If I turn to Romans chapter 9, you can see that God in his infinite sovereignty is able to make some vessels to honor and some for dishonor. You can read about the text and some of us may be a little bit uncomfortable about it, but God understands what honor is. If he puts you into the body of Christ and he's given you a particular task, let's say he makes you a pinky finger in the body of Christ. Is that something bad or is that something good? Be careful. If you're a complainer and say, well, I want to be the pointer finger. Or some of you want to be the tallest finger. I'm not going to show you. When, when you realize that God places people in the body because he chooses to place them in the body where he does, he gives them with all those things. We read about that in, he, in Romans 12, and I'll be picking that up again in the next sermon. But when you realize that God has put it all together, he also makes some of us in positions of more honor than others. He gives some, some leadership roles, and to others he gives the following roles. Praise God that he has included us in his body. But when I look a little further, I say, if people fail to honor those who are worthy of honor, God will use other means to bring praise. Sometimes he'll praise them himself, and he'll bless them with a peace that passes understanding. I think as the one Old Testament place says that if we hold our peace when we're supposed to speak up, even the rocks will cry out. That's talking about giving God the honor that he's due. If we as evangelists just zip our lips and never tell a soul, if we have a church that we never invite anybody to, then the Bible says that shame on you for not telling people about God, that you don't have a testimony for God. But even the rocks will cry out. You can see the fossils, you'll be able to see other things and they will point people to the fact that there is a God in this world. 
A lot of people struggle with what is honor and what is it supposed to look like. I was going to highlight a little bit uh, because I've been studying about Haman. Uh, there was a, a story in Esther uh, where, where you find that King Ahasuerus is, a, is the potentate. He doesn't have to wait on Congress to make a law because in the Medes and the Persians, when, when one of those guys made a law, then that was done. They couldn't, even the potentate couldn't erase it. It was a final deed. Now, when you realize that this King Ahasuerus is, is trying to figure out what to do, and uh, he has this bad dream, and in his dream he says, man, I'm, I'm, I'm restless, and he wakes up and he says, I think I'm supposed to remember something. And so they opened up the history book, and they found that there was a fellow in the kingdom that had rescued his life. That guy's name was Mordecai. When you read the rest of the story, you'll see it. But I'm focused today on honor. And so when the king was awakened early in the, in the wee hours of the morning and he's talking to one of his servants and he's figured out, oh, that's the guy. He says, well, how, how can I honor that man for his honorable deed? Because nobody honored him. And so, so as he's thinking about it, the king is saying, mm, how do I honor this guy? Well, it happened to be that, that uh, there was another rich fellow, a, a very polished politician. He ends up coming into the king's court, and, and so he asks that question. He poses this question to Haman, who is that, that shrewd politician. And he says, Haman, he says, I want to honor somebody who has done something honorable. He says, what should I do? And if I asked you today, how do you honor people that are honorable? You might have the same thoughts that, that, uh, that Haman did. I'm not going to read the text, but I'll summarize it for you. There's three aspects to it. He said, uh, first, he says, it ought to be visual. Second, it ought to be audible. And third, it should be affirm affirming. He says, visually, uh, Haman is telling the king, well, if you want to honor somebody, you ought to put on him the best clothes. You ought to dress him up. You ought to be able to take him to the outlet mall and let him buy whatever is cool and let him look good. Hey, and that's really, and then he says, you ought to give him the best transportation. In Haman's day, put him on a fancy horse that had a cool carpet over top of it and, and do that. Today, it would probably be put him in a fancy car convertible and let him sit on the back as if he was going through a parade. Teach him how to wave. Oh, is that only for, for the princesses? But my point is, is that this, this is the visual thing that Haman as an earth, earthly person was saying, hey, you honor people visually. You let them know. You want everything to be done visually. Then second, audibly. He says, because Haman gave this counsel, he says, it's not good enough that you should just look good. You want to be able to make sure that people are moved from their normalcy and let it be audible. You know, they almost get a trumpet. Doo, 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 doo. You know, all that kind of stuff. And you basically have a town crier that goes out and says, Hey, everybody, look here, look here. Hear ye, hear ye. And, and that's why they wanted to be audible so that you would turn your eyes to actually see because your ears were, were tickled. But on top of that, Haman said that if you want to honor somebody, it shouldn't just be that the public sees and hears. The public should chime in. And he wanted applause. He said, let it be affirming. Let it be that when all the people hear it, they're going to say, all right, yay, yay, way to go. They almost become fans. And that was the imagery about how to honor somebody in this world. It's kind of sad. I set the stage today now because I'm going to shift to David and Uriah. David was familiar with some of these same kind of means. Remember when David uh, had success against that tall guy named Goliath? 
You remember, everybody was pretty much amazed at this little boy named David. Uh, either he could flow this, uh, throw this great little rock through the sling, or they were really impressed by the fact that he wasn't afraid to go up against them when everybody else was cowering. Their knees were knocking. They couldn't even speak, but little David stands up and he says, There is a God in Israel! And then he takes a stone and, and Goliath comes tumbling down. Super impressive to be able to realize all that kind of stuff. But you know the honor that David got? Was that when David went back to Jerusalem, or when he, actually he went back to, the, to where Saul had his palaces, you know, the people there all, especially the girls, they were singing beautifully as they came in. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. David knew what it was like to get the praise of people, to get the honor. He wasn't seeking the honor out, but he got it and he knew. Now, when I go to this particular text now in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the force of honor. Identifying where honor is deserved and where it is not. I briefly want to go through and tell you this story because it's probably new to some of you may have never read it. This is a historical account of what took place in David's life. This is probably the darkest part of David's life. Because sin had crept into his heart. The man who, after, who, had a, who was called the man after God's own heart certainly has a dirty chapter. I want you to meet the cast and then we're going to measure some of their content uh, before we mind the consequences. When we meet the characters here, we're going to see that David the king is finally king. I've told you before, he is a great guy, a man after God's own heart. He has been leading people to victory and all these kind of wonderful things. And I want you to know that David, we like him. In fact, even today, a lot of people will name their sons David. It's a good name. Then there's this other guy named Uriah. And Uriah, he's introduced us to, uh, before this story. You can find out about Uriah because he was listed in the number of mighty men. David had gathered about 600 mighty men around him. And these mighty men, they, they were skilled in warfare. They, uh, when they were hiding out there and they were fleeing from Saul, uh, they were the people that surrounded David and protected him. But they also developed their skills. David had been a giant killer, and the Bible tells that some of these other mighty men became giant killers. We think they actually killed Goliath's brothers. Now, when you realize that Uriah was one of these mighty men, what does that tell you about David's relationship with Uriah? Total strangers? Just Facebook friends? You know, maybe he liked one of his pictures? No, we understand here that David knew Uriah. David and Uriah were friends. They were buds. They were a band of brothers. And Uriah was a mighty man. He had a place in the city that was not too far from the palace. Uh, how do I know that? Because Bathsheba was married to Uriah. And if David was standing on his, on his porch at the top and he could actually see that far, either he had really good vision or that she lived not too far away. I can't imagine that she was like 20 blocks away. I don't think David would have lusted after her if he couldn't see her. So Uriah is pretty close. He lives really close. And it's, it's in the town of Jabus, which is turned into Jerusalem. Because when David took that city, he put a wall around it. And, it, and, and so the mount, if you, if you can see the picture in your mind of, the, of, the, of Solomon's temple, which was going to be built at the top of Mount Zion... It wasn't built there yet, but if you go down a little bit, then you get David's palace here, and you go a little down further, and you get this, this area here that the Kidron Valley kind of lines around, and it's in that town that the city of Jerusalem's foundational city is there. 
And it, it's in that little town on the little lower ledge between uh, David's uh, big tower where he had his palace. He could look down and see in the city and that's where Uriah lived. Now, I told you the, the cast of characters is David and Uriah, but I can't ignore that there is a beautiful woman that you can't skip over. Apparently, the Bible tells us there's lots of beautiful women in Scripture. David's friend's wife, and she was known because she was pretty. She ends up, uh, and, and she was bathing and getting taken care of, and uh, she was up at a rooftop. I'm not sure what it all looked like. I'm hopefully not going to think about that too much. Hope you guys don't either, but David shouldn't have been there in the first place to notice it. And then you realize there's another character besides Bathsheba that's a key into this story. His name is Joab. He is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. And so when David had his army going out there, David was the king and commander, but his right-hand man was Joab, who was also a relative. And then there were some other people there, some servants, the folks that uh, managed the household there, the ones that went out and fetched Bathsheba to be able to bring her into the palace. And there was also the servants that would take the messages out to Joab uh, and be able to do some of that communication. The Bible tells us about one more character, but I didn't introduce him to you. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll read chapter 12, uh, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is basically the preacher guy of the story. He is the clergy that appears out of nowhere. It's not that he was just magic, but David is, is now getting a pastoral visit. Maybe that's why you guys don't like to invite me over to your house. But Nathan is God's spokesman, and that's what you find in the rest of the story. Now, those are the cast of characters that you wanted to meet. Now, let me explain it to you real quick about the measure of the content. Well, I want you to measure what's going on here, their conduct and their content. I want you to discern whether things are honorable or not honorable. And I'll go through the list real quick. So we have Uriah, who was this... Uriah's conduct is amazing. You remember how I read the story for you and you're trying to put the pieces together? I mean, here, Uriah's out on the battlefield. He gets a special messenger to come back and visit the king. He comes back to visit the king and the king says, hey, um, I'm, tell me what's going on firsthand report. You're my friend, tell me. And so he tells him what's going on. He tells him about success and he says, hey, while you're here, just go home and enjoy some time. Get a, little, you know, get a day at R&R &R before you go back. And Uriah messes all this up. Because Uriah has such good conduct, he says, no, I'm a valiant warrior. This is the time to be in battle, and I'm not going to, going to entangle myself with the affairs of man. I'm going to stay ready. I'm going to stay tip-top. I'm going to do my king's bidding because our country is at war. His self-discipline was stellar. His, notable con his noble conduct is at the core of this narrative. He is so honorable that you almost want to say, do you want to pick a print on him and say, is he for real? Can you think of anybody today in the, in, in the 21st century that is that kind of noble character that would do what they say they're going to do and not just do what seems easy and, con and convenient and pragmatic? The question is, would you? Do you have, have Uriah's kind of noble character? Then I'll go to David. Well, David is supposed to be the man after God's own heart, but we're introduced to his immoral choices. And it's in stark contrast. If I take you to chapter 11, verse 1, and I'll tell you the, the first four Four verses are powerful because you hear it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained in Jerusalem. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house on the palace that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David knows. And David sent messengers to go fetch her. And so Bathsheba came to him. And he laid with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And verse 5 is the rest of the story. She became pregnant. An unwanted pregnancy. Messed things up. What we find out in about the character of David's conduct is that it's really bad. And the weird thing about this is that all of us know who David is, but nobody would ever believe this about David. Would you? Did you hear the rumor? Did you hear it? Wasn't it in the tabloids that David was spotted bringing this girl in on, in, the, in the cover of the night to be able to bring her into the palace? I mean, it's really awful. And yet today, there's no more shame on any of these things. I mean, if you listen to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, my goodness, people are coming and going. They're doing trips and, and they don't even have to leave their place. They're doing all this kind of stuff, and it's like, whoa! And yet when we look back, what God sees, one girl that's married to another should not be in the king's bed. David's immoral choices are in stark contrast to Uriah. David stoops to dishonor. He dishonors friendship, marriage, parenting, the government itself, the welfare of the people, and even of his friend's life. It's so hard to imagine that anybody with such good character could be so bad. Somebody that should be honored is so dishonorable. Now, I mentioned a couple of the other characters in Bathsheba. Now, what did Bathsheba do that was wrong? Bathsheba ended up doing, she was a faithful wife. She didn't have any malintent. Uh, and she ends up being swept away, brought into the king's court, and put into an, a very bad situation. And the next thing you know, it's complicated when she ends up being pregnant. She has been a victim of dishonor. She was yoked together without even her own consent. It's so sad when you mess other people up in your own sins. And then you go on a little further. Joab is another party in this. When we look at his character, uh, when you measure it, what kind, of, what kind of, would you give Joab an A for honor or a B or a C or an F? This is one of those things that makes me back, takes me back to the movie A Few Good Men where they have that, uh, uh, they, they order a code red and the, and the commander of the, of the base is, is saying, we need to have tough discipline in here. And he says, you're right, I ordered that code red. And, and he takes responsibility for it. And it's really interesting how the struggle that goes on. Joab is an amazing character. Joab does the bidding of his king. And some might want to say that this is awful. And some might say it is amazing. That Joab, being one of the mighty men of David, is actually putting one of his brothers into harm's way. And Joab does it with such ease, with such, um, I don't want to say sophistication, but with such professionalism that it's done. 
And they do it so openly that they can even have the messenger deliver the message uh, in such a way that it's in code that David understands clearly that Joab has done his king's bidding. In some ways, he's super honorable. But before God, did he do the honorable thing? And then you look, there's a few others um, that go in there, but I, I don't have enough time to get into everybody else's business, but I do want to now mind the consequences, the impact upon the other lives. The force of honor and dishonor comes into play the, to apply honor to the situation. They were supposed to render, uh, according to the New Testament, give honor where honor is due. And what do you do now when you have a king that is so bad? What do you do? puts everybody in, a, in an awkward position. Seeing honor in action is to look at Uriah. Here's a guy who gave his life. And why did he give his life? Because if you read the story, when you hear his own testimony, he says, I'm on the, I'm on the, the king's army. I am fighting for battle. And whether I'm in the front lines or whether I'm back here just delivering a message to the king, I'm in the army. And I'm going to do my best to advance that cause. Such devotion and such dedication. Uriah was not the first nor the last. You can find out in scripture earlier, Job, when he was going through struggles and his wife told him, ah, it's so bad, you know, just curse God and God die. And, and Job says, no way, my redeemer lives. I'm going to be faithful to him. Or later when I mentioned Mordecai, Mordecai stared down looming death. He was the one that, that was going to, to be killed. Uh, and I'll read about that in the next week. But Mordecai stayed true. He was steadfast through it all. He was so honorable that God ended up bringing him deliverance. But when you look at the dishonor of David in this passage, you can't get by. Uh, Psalm 51 tells us a little bit more about him. When you read it, Psalm 51, and he goes on, if you looked at the next verse there, and, and you see that David is torn up in verse 1. You have that one there. Have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy. David understands he has a heart after God's own heart. And when he was awakened to the dishonor that he brought to the name of God, he cries out to God and he writes about it in Psalm 51. And he says, against thee and thee only have I done this sin. He sees that all sin is against God personally. It's miserable. And that's why when, when Uriah, excuse me, when, when uh, the chapter 12 of 2 Samuel comes to pass, Nathan shows up and he comes to him and he brings the message of hope. And you can read the rest of the story, but he goes to David and he says, David, let me tell you a story. So the preacher visit was very nice. He tells him a nice story and then, then he's, and David gets angry in the story because he says, that's unfair. That man shouldn't mistreat his neighbor like that. That man had everything he needed. Why did he take what his neighbor had? And then Nathan says, David, you are the ugly man that did this to Uriah. And David was exposed, his sin was, was seen, and that's when you find Psalm 51, recognizing the dishonor. I want you to know, Galatians 6 tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. If you are dishonorable, you'll reap the consequences. If you're honorable, you reap the blessings. I want to encourage you, the consequences will flow. The pain of guilt. In David's case, it was the pain of guilt, the loss of the child, the erosion of the family unit, and worse, he had lost fellowship with God until there was repentance. But I want to finish with this sermon by talking about not just the source, course, and force of, of honor, but I want you to see 
the, I want you to see the one who is worthy. I want you to see Jesus. It's very, very interesting that, that we're supposed to give honor to where honor is due. And on Memorial Day, we remember the greatest sacrifice. They didn't remember Uriah, but I cannot let us leave church without remembering Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father. What is owed to Christ? Well, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, you're going to recognize that because he accomplished all these things, that the Bible says that God has given him a name above every name. He has given him honor. It's audible. It's visual. It's everything. But it's for us to join in the affirmation that he is worthy. No other name given among men whereby we can be saved. Because Jesus took on an enemy that none of us could fight. We can't even fight COVID. You can try to put a mask over it. You can try to put a shot in there. And you can try to stay away from everybody that might be sick. But you still can't stop death. It is appointed unto a man and to a woman once to die. Because these physical bodies were not made for eternity. They have to be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Jesus was willing to take on our physical death. And because he took on that death, because the wages of our sin is physical death. It's separation not only from the body and the soul, but it's separation from the grace of God in hell. And Jesus took that on. It's amazing what he accomplished. But oh, how sad it was from Good Friday to Silent Saturday when Jesus was in the grave. I don't know if, if you could ever fathom it. The grief the hopelessness. You see, because if Christ is dead, then everything is vain. All this Old Testament talk, all this character, all this honorability. I mean, if, 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 if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if he's stuck there, if he can't get out, if he's held down, then there is no hope for anybody else. And so when Jesus, up from the grave, he arose on that Sunday morning, wow, everything changed. Because now human beings realize that there is hope, that there is validation, that in this world when we suffer persecution, and as Jesus himself said, every day you'll have sufficient trouble for itself, whether it's car trouble, whether it's appliance trouble, whether it's hair falling out, whether it's the inflation going up or the stock market going down, whatever it is, every day you'll have troubles. But be of good cheer. If you're with me, I have overcome because there's something coming next. And if you're with me, your heart need not be troubled, John 14. If you believe in me and trust in me, if you're resting in me, then I will have a, a place at the Father, in the Father's mansions for you, a room. He says, it's true, I've told you. I'm going to go and I'm gonna get it ready for you. I'm gonna take care of all that. And when I come again, I'll receive you to myself and you'll be with me forever. Comfort one another with these words. I started off with talking about what honor was, and I want to make sure we give honor to Jesus. And so I want to finish with a rendition of, uh, of the Gettysburg Address. It's for Christians here in 2021. 19 score and 10 years ago, our Heavenly Father brought forth on this little piece, on that little piece of promised land in the Middle East, a new anti-type salvation conceived in the innocence of a sinless child and dedicated to the proposition that all men are in need of divine forgiveness. 
Even now in the 21st century, we are still engaged in a great inner struggle, testing whether a person conceived in sin of any age or ethnic can experience that a state of being made right with God, no longer under his wrath and curse. We are met here in a church on a great day of this ongoing battle within our sin nature. We have come to dedicate a portion of our time on earth, remembering that the final place of the one who there on Golgotha's, Golgotha's hill gave his life as the Lamb of God, that our souls might live by being made at peace with God. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, especially as the sovereign God has called us for this honoring to take place on every Christian Sabbath. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot concentrate, consecrate, we cannot improve upon his hallowing, uh, hallowed anointing sacrifice upon the cross. Only the one, the brave and the committed son of God who hung there, suspended between heaven and earth on that first Good Friday, bore in his body the wrath of God due upon our sin, accomplishing far more than our poor power even to live a good life. Or to be a better person. The world made little note, nor long remember what is said by this pastor in this church today, even on this Memorial Day when you're called to remember. But it must never forget what he did there on Zion's Hill, saving his people from their sins. So it is for us, the living, Rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished task of the work of evangelism, which he who died there back in AD 33 had thus proposed to be nobly advanced, even to the ends of the earth. And, and so it is rather for us to be here dedicated to this great task remaining for us, that from the one's honored death, burial, and resurrection, that we would take an increased devotion to his cause, for which the Christ gave his last full measure of devotion, drinking the full cup of the Father's wrath upon sin, that we here highly resolve that his death shall not have been in vain, and that his church, being under God, shall have a new renewal of zeal, and that his great salvation provided by Christ alone due to grace alone, received by faith alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the purposes of God's glory alone, shall not be held back on this earth, but shall accomplish the very purpose for which the Father had predestined to complete on this earth. You see, it's Memorial Day, and we do marvel at the sacrifice that people have given but I'll never want you to ever forget, not even for a moment, the love that Jesus sacrificed for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that the address that you gave did not have to come after while the war was still raging. The address you gave was when you conquered. We thank you that when you came from, up from the grave, that you had actually propitiated God's wrath. And that's why the apostle could write in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And that is why John the Beloved could write that famous verse we all know, that God so loved that he gave Jesus, 
that those that are going to be cared for and forgiven by Christ would not perish, but have something that is beyond this world, everlasting life. Lord, I thank you that you've given us this great commission, that as we remember Christ's death today, that we go forth to finish that task or to complete it, to go forth to the ends of the earth and to share the good news, to be lights in this world, to be able to be ambassadors of the one who saved us. May we communicate that gospel by our words, by our deeds, and with our love. In Jesus' name.